What would it be a devoted fan if, if, of your team? Well, you'd wear their jersey, wouldn't you? I mean, you wear their hat, you display it proudly, you argue with everybody how great your team is compared to theirs. If you're really out there, you might paint yourself and stand in the cold or <laughs> as you see on TV to watch people play the game. Um, you spend money, lots of money. Um, priorities, that's what it becomes. Um, you uh, give of your time. You might even buy season tickets, but that's what you do, isn't it? That's what you do when you're devoted to your team. If you're a devoted friend, have you ever had a devoted friend? Someone that you really could count on? Someone that was always there for you during thick or thin? I mean, they would challenge you when you need it. They would tell you what no one else wanted to say to you. They would listen to you. They would cry with you, um, laugh with you. Um, a devoted friend. The dictionary also says, as uh, antonym, what's the opposite of devotion? Here are the words they listed. Uncaring, indifferent, apathetic, neglectful, uncommitted. See, this morning, you are one or the other to Jesus. You are one or the other. You are devoted to him or you're not. And, and Jesus doesn't really have a middle ground. He says, you're either for me or against me. And, and we all love, as Christians, as we read the Bible and survey the stories, we can think of, and if I asked this morning, you would tell me who your favorite biblical character was that demonstrated devotion to God. And you might say, Noah, I mean, the guy was devoted to God for 120 years to build an ark when there hadn't been rain yet. I mean, Abraham, who wandered through the promised land, never receiving the promises. I mean, Moses took all the griping and complaining, and his own people tried to kill him for 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, he was devoted. Joshua, fighting battle after battle, risking their lives to conquest of Canaan. Nehemiah, and all that he went through to rebuild the temple. And Daniel, going in the lions. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, willing to follow God. They're so devoted that they would go into the fiery furnace to keep from bowing to false gods. I mean, we could go on and tell the stories, couldn't we? Of Esther and her devotion and Ruth to Naomi and on and on and on the stories go. But one of them that we don't often focus on that I want to take a few minutes uh, to go over this morning is that of David's mighty men. He had 37 of them, and they're listed all out by name. They were called in Hebrew the Gibarim, and the word gibarim means mighty, and that's why we get mighty men. Um, Im is the plural. It's the same word that is used to uh, the title or name of God, mighty God. It's the same one, and they have power. It's men who uh, we would call today maybe Jewish Jedi. Um, people who really had, they were, they were powerful. Um, they would say, maybe we would say today they are the military elite. They were special forces. Uh, maybe they were the Green Beret, the Rangers, the Delta Force, the SEALs of, uh, of that day. And they're listed in the text that I read to you a little bit earlier, just a few verses earlier. And the number one and two and three, there were 37, but the top three guys that David could depend on, the top three guys that were devoted to him, one was, his name was Jesheb. And it says that he killed 800 enemies in one single battle. Now imagine that. 
I mean, that's incredible. I can't even fathom how that could be possible, but he killed 800 people in one battle. The second guy, Eleazar, he fought so hard in a battle and so long that when the battle was over, his sword was stuck to his hand and he couldn't let it go. I mean, that is dedication, isn't it? Shema was the third guy, and he was caught in a field protecting the food supply for Israel, and everybody else ran, but not him. He took on the whole Philistines by himself, and he wiped them out and, and preserved that field for the food. I mean, and on and on the exploits go of these men that were devoted to their king. And, and you can't read a passage like ours and the preceding verses before without asking the question, can you? What or who are you really devoted to? Now, for some of you and some of us, it's not really that hard to figure out. For some, it's their political party, and all you have to do is go on social media and see some of the things that are on Facebook and otherwise about Republicans or Democrats or the presidential race, and take, you will know exactly where people are devoted and how much they're devoted to their political party. Some people are really devoted to their career. They eat and sleep their job. I mean, their goal in life, their main goal, or one of them, if not the top, is to get advanced, to make more money, to have more things, or whatever the reason is that they do it. But they give their life to it. And some people, it's their education. Others, it's the sports that they are involved in. For some people, it's their family. And see, that's the thing, isn't it? To be devoted is not that the, all the things that we devote ourselves are inherently bad. Certainly, it wouldn't be wrong to be devoted to your family and to some level, your job or anything else that you're involved in. Some people are devoted to working out at the gym, to staying in shape, to looking a certain way and having a certain physique and all that goes with that. Some people are devoted to America, and you can see where a strong sense of nationalism, for good or bad, can take people. Some people are devoted to money and having it and accumulating it and all having all the buying and the material things that go with it. Some people are absorbed in their retirement portfolio and what they're going to do when they don't have to go to work anymore in the last years of their life and all the places they're going to go, and it, and it consumes them. So what, what are you devoted to? What are you, what, and again, remember the definition? Almost exclusively focused on it. See, what are your kids? What do you allow them to be devoted to in your home? What are they almost exclusively devoted to? See, when it came to David's mighty men, they were totally devoted to their king. But the question is, well, what did that really look like? And if you, this morning, would leave here and make the decision to be devoted to your king, what would it look like for you? See, let me give you a little bit of the context. The Philistines had moved in to Israel. Uh, and the reason that they had come down to the valley of Rephraim and to Bethlehem in that area where the Bible depicts them as being because they're trying to cut Judah off from the top. They're trying to, to bisect the country because here's what they don't want. They don't want David to come to power. He has not been king all that long and they don't want him to gain any power and so they want to capture him and so they try to capture him and they're not successful but he's on the run and they put up a big encampment of Philistines in the valley of Rephaim which is a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and a little bit uh, south of that is Bethlehem and right between those two areas 
is where David is staked out. They put a garrison. A garrison, if you read 1 Samuel 14, 1, was about 20 men. So there's about 20 or plus men in Bethlehem. And if you know anything about David, that's his hometown. And so David, as a crucial point, Israel is really weak right now. They're on the verge of collapse. The Bible says that our story takes place at harvest time. And that's what invading countries would do. They would come to Israel during the time they would try to get all their crops in and they would take all their food from them, which would starve them out and they'd have to be their slaves in order to eat. So David and Israel at a very vulnerable point. The enemy has come in. They've taken over David's hometown. They're not sure if they're going to get all the food that they need. It looks really, really bad. And David has succumbed to not being in Israel or Jerusalem, I should say, anymore. But he has gone to, in verse 13, look at it yourself. He's in the cave of Adullam. And you could cross-reference this with 1 Samuel 22.1 because David has been in this cave before. Remember when he was on the run and Saul was trying to take his life? This is where his fortress was. It was in a cave. This is where he was hiding out. And so in the middle of all of this uncertainty... And all of his enemies around him, taking over his hometown, not sure what the future of Jerusalem is or his own kingship, David says something. He says something in this cave with all of his other guys around, but he's talking to himself. He's just expressing a desire. And you can see it emotionally laden are these words. It starts with the Hebrew word, oh, and he really is feeling this. And he says in verse 15, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Let me clear up right off the bat. David is not really physically thirsty. He's not. No one, in fact, we all know, if you read archaeology, there was a big spring really close to the cave of Adullam. And he was smart enough to know that you can't have hundreds of guys who are there with you in a little armed forces and have no water nearby. So it wasn't that he didn't have access to drinking water because he did. So what is he saying? He's not after physical water. He's really expressing a longing because he's in need of some spiritual water because all of his circumstances, as he looks around, he sees the Philistines and they're encamped in the valley. His own hometown has been taken over. He is on the run. And he looks at his circumstances and then he looks at what God had said to him as the king of Israel. He said, I'll make you king. I'll establish you at king. Someone will always sit on the throne of Israel from your line. And what he does is he looks around. He looks around at his circumstances and he doesn't see how that could possibly happen. See, he's wrestling with God. He's wrestling with God's promises for what it means to him to be king. That God said certain things. Now how is God going to come through? And so here's what it looks like. See, he's on the run again. He's back in the same old cave he was as he was before. He's a fugitive again. And the questions have to be going through his mind. What kind of king can't even get a drink from his own hometown well? I mean, do I have any power at all? I mean, he's feeling weak and significant. Only a temporary king that isn't going to make it can't even get water from his own hometown. So when David desires a drink from Bethlehem, you know what he's really longing for? He's longing to have the assurance back that God is with him. He wants to have the confidence that he had in God's word to be restored to him again. 
Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there this morning. You ever been in a cave like that one? Where you this morning, you look around at your circumstances, you look around at the things going on in your life, and the things that you experience and have experienced again and again and again. And you begin to say to yourself, you begin to question yourself and say, where is God? What are you doing? And you begin to look at God's word and God, you said you would do this, but look at my life. Unemployment again. God, I had this job and then I lost it. And and the financial struggles that you face. And you once lived on your own, now you're living back home again. Or you're doing this and you had this place and now you're back down to this. Single again. I thought this relationship was really the one. And I thought God was going to provide someone that I could live with and love and have a family together. And here I am by myself, alone again. You know, my marriage, it's falling apart again. We're at the counselor again, separated again. Maybe out of all of this, through the pandemic and the things that happen in your life, you'd say, and despite, on top of all of that, depressed again, anxious again, fearful again, and the emptiness, it's creeping back. See, and you're in the cave, and David would say, I've been here, I've been here before, you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Walker, I've been here before, I've been in this circumstance, I've had this happen to me, and I thought that, you know, that would be the end, and I put that behind me, and I'm moving on, and God's doing this, and here I am, right back to where I was before, and David's asking, God, are you still there for me? God, will I ever be king? Will I ever really defeat the Philistines? And and he's got so many questions going on that don't seem to match up with God's word when he looks around at his circumstances. And so in all of that turmoil and emotional upsetting uh, situation that he's in, David just says something out loud, not realizing that anybody really is listening. And and, and you know he says, even if he thought someone might be listening, he's certainly thinking that no one's going to take me literally. I mean, there's soldiers up there. And so he's not giving command. He's not asking for volunteers He's not thinking that anybody's going to do anything about what he's saying. He's just expressing a longing and a desire to see God work in his life again. But what happens next is absolutely amazing. And we are told that the three mighty men, the ones I mentioned to you, the guys who are the greatest of the Jewish Jedis that he has, you know what they do? They hear his words. They hear what he's longing. They hear his desire. And you know what they do? They put on their sword, they grab their armor, and they grab a water skin, and they take off for Bethlehem. Now let me tell you what it means for them to do that. Um, You look geographically, and if you want to sometime, I have a, a topographical map that is 3D in my office. It's about this big, but it shows Israel, but it shows all the the, you know, the mountain ranges and the valleys. It's all 3D. It's not flat. It's got depth to it. And if you look at where Jerusalem is, it's up on a hill. Bethlehem is just a little bit down from that. And over here, the valley is, goes way down in a ravine. And the, the encampment of the Philistines is over this way. And David's at the cave of Adullam, which is a little about three miles south of Bethlehem, where the Philistines have a garrison. And for them to go to Bethlehem would be a three-mile trek. And most of it would be uphill. And when you go to Israel, you'll find uphill doesn't mean gradual. 
It's, a, it's, it's really uphill. It's steep. And so when they get there, they have to fight their way into Bethlehem because every city's well was inside the gate. So when these guys take up their sword and their armor and they hear David wants a drink of water from there, they know it's going to cost. They're going to fight their way uphill after walking through the desert. They have to fight the soldiers outside the city. They have to get through the gate. They have to go in. Two of them have to keep fighting while the one guy stops and fills up the water. And you know, it's not just turning on a faucet. You've got to get the bucket to go down and get the water, bring it back up, and then fill it up. So it's going to take a little bit of time. So they only have two guys fighting off the rest of the 20 guys at the garrison while all that's taking place. And that's why the Bible says they break through the camp of the Philistines to do it. And then once they get the water, they have to fight their way back out of the city and down the hill. And after all of that, as tired and as hurt as they might be, they have to walk the three miles back in the desert in the heat. And they don't touch not even a drop of the water that they're bringing him. My thought was, what do we learn about total devotion from that? Well, here's what I learned, two things. Number one is this, total devotion always starts on the inside. Always starts on the inside. I call it devoted desires. See, when you're totally devoted to someone, there is no difference, hear me, there is no difference between a command and a desire from the person that you love. There is no difference. For when you're totally devoted, just someone's longing, their desire, a sigh, as one author I read, a sigh is enough. See, you want to do anything for that person, and you don't feel that you have to do it out of some obligated duty, some compulsion on the outside, no, it's done out of delight because when you're totally devoted to someone, the pleasure you get from giving them pleasure far outweighs and exceeds the pleasure that you get from taking pleasure from them. And that's how David's mighty men felt about him. See, their, his desire was their delight. That's total devotion. Let me put it to you this way. Total devotion goes way beyond the rules. See, when you get a job and you say, hey, here's the job, give me the job description. And if you're there and all you care about, all you ever do is just what the job description is. See, you're not totally devoted. Because total devotion goes way beyond the rules. It goes much further than just obeying commands. In the Bible, you know what total devotion is? It is an orientation of the heart. It comes from inside. It comes from what you really love the most. And we used to tell our kids when they're cleaning their room, it's not that you have to, you get to. You ever tell your kids that? See, I don't have to do that. We want to let them know you should want to do that for your sister. You should want to do that for your brother. You should have a heart like that. And so when you're a Christian, we shouldn't be trying to do as little as possible. We shouldn't always be seeking to do the minimum so that we say that we did what you asked us to do. No, when your parents tell you this, you should do that and more. You should go beyond. We call it going the extra mile. See, that's total devotion. Do you do that for your spouse? Do you do just whatever it takes to get by so that they're not mad at you? Or are you totally devoted to them? I mean, you know what they like and you know what makes them happy and you know what pushes their buttons. Which one do you do? 
Do you do it because you have to, or do you do it because you want to? We have some people at Faith Baptist Church who are really devoted to their small groups. I mean, they want to be there. They don't want to ever break off from that small group, and that's a really great thing. But let me ask you, are you devoted in that way to God? Or is it just a rule-keeping thing with you? You know what 1 John 5, 4 says? That when you love God, here's what it says, and his commandments are not burdensome. It doesn't weigh you down. It's not because I'm obligated. I don't do it just because I have to. Because when God tells me something and he gives me a command, here's what a a totally devoted person, I want to do it. It's not, my yoke is easy, Jesus said, and my burden is light. When Jesus commands you, when you yoke up with him, when you follow him, and Jesus says, I want you to give up everything for me, it doesn't sound like, oh my goodness, what are you, can you ask that of me? Really? No, it's what you want to do. It's what you desire to do. And so there are a lot of people learn the level of their devotion to God when the Bible says to you, why don't you give 10% of your income? And they ask, do I really have to? And if they do, they give it 10, and they mark it right off. I mean, 10% and no more. How much do I have to give? Maybe we should say, how much can I give? Obviously, our people at Faith Baptist Church are so generous and faithful in their giving. But that's not all of God's people. Service. What does God command? What's the minimum I have to do? Or instead of maybe what we could say, what does he want from me? What kind of service would make God smile? What would put a smile, what would make him happy? What would make his heart moved by the service I give to him? Do I really have to come, Pastor Walker? You know, if, I, if I'm a Christian, a good Christian, does that mean I have to come Sunday morning and I gotta come to small groups on Sunday night and I gotta come to the Wednesday service? And I, no, you don't have to. But the question is, why don't you want to? Why don't you delight in it? See, we could make you have a guilt trip and I can tell you, you know, you're a lousy Christian if you don't come to all the services. But what good would that do if you don't want to do it and love to do it? Now, I know there's a a level or an element that you do what you're supposed to do even if you don't feel like it. And I'm not talking about a feeling. I'm talking about a desire because of love. I'm talking about a joy because of a personal relationship. And so when it comes to Bible reading, or praying. Do you do as little as you can so that you say, I, I had my devotions this morning and therefore God may not you know, give me a flat tire and he's not gonna do this to me? Are you just trying to stay on his good side or do you spend time in his word and you can't get enough of it and you wish I could do it longer and I pray on my knees and nobody's gonna have to tell me that I gotta pray? You know why? Because I want to. Because I love him. Because he's my everything. And when it comes to holiness... You know, what is the minimum I have to, can I watch this movie? Can I really look at this stuff on the internet? Can I read, read these kind of books? Hey, maybe can I be involved in this? Can I drink this? Can I, and whatever, see, why is it that when God commands us that we don't delight in obeying him? Where is the desire? See, these guys went the extra mile, literally the extra three miles. They went uphill, they fought for him. And, and here's what I noticed that wasn't in the text. Their devotion to David when he made his little expression of desire was instantaneous. It was automatic. You know what the Bible doesn't record them doing? Discussing it. They didn't evaluate the risk factors. They didn't go over, well, if we do this, what might happen? It just says they got up and they went. 
Here's why. Listen. Because when you love, love looks for ways to please the other person. You know what that means? Total devotion is active, not passive. It's not waiting. True devotion is not waiting for Faith Baptist Church to organize an event so that I can serve somebody else who's in need. You know what it is? It's you looking. It's not just waiting for pastors to visit someone in the hospital or go to a funeral or attend their wedding or to send them some groceries or make, send them some flowers. You know what it is? It's not any of those things. You know what it is? It's you doing it because you have the desire in your heart, because you're devoted to our church family, because you care about people. See, that's, that's what God's looking for. It's not just waiting to be asked to join a ministry or be on a committee. No, because you know as well as I do, he's not just after the rules. He's not just after your duty. He's not just after your external conformity. See, David has a personal relationship with these guys. They've been in this cave before. They were on the run together. They fought together. They sacrificed together. See, David knows them and their family. So they don't just do it to say good on his good side. They're not doing it just because that's the job description of a mighty man. They're doing it because, listen, his longing is their love. (laughs) His longing is their love. So let me say it to you this way. Deeds without desire are just duty. If you came here this morning out of religious obligation, God isn't pleased. Read Isaiah 1 for yourself. God doesn't want just, he wants external conformity, but he wants it to come from a certain type of heart. So you know where total devotion comes from? It comes from devoted desires. That's not without saying. The second one is also true. Total devotion has devoted desires, but it also has devoted deeds. And there are two types of them. Let me just say both of them quickly. In verse 17, it says, he would not drink it, or he said, he would not drink it, or shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Do you see what he's saying? It's incredible. The, listen to this. If you're wondering what you should do to show your devotion to God, listen to this. They risked their lives to bring David a drink of water from his well. Was that something amazing in and of itself? No. They, they, would you ever risk your life to bring someone a drink of water? See, that would blow our mind. I can't imagine doing such an amazing thing for such a little request. But they could. You know what? That's what total devotion is. They devoted their lives. They sacrificed it to bring him a drink of water. He couldn't imagine life without a handkerchief. Not that he lived a life that required one, because he lived in a hobbit hole. His very comfy, fully furnished home in the hill. He had no interest in traveling into the untidy, uncomfortable, unpredictable, unknown. That's Tolkien's words of Bilbo Baggins, who lived in the Shire. He goes on to describe life in the Shire. Swords in these parts are mostly blunt. Axes are used for trees. Shields as cradles or dish covers, and dragons, they are comfortably far off, he says. You see, in America, 
you and I face the peril and the grave danger, whether we realize it or not, that we don't want to risk for anyone or anything, and at times that includes Jesus. See, ease tempts us to love our luxuries and count radical living for Jesus as unwise and kind of ridiculous. And when invited to go with Gandalf and the dwarves on their adventure, Bilbo said this, I have no use for adventures. Listen to this. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They'll make you late for your dinner. I am amazed sometimes, even at God's people, of some of the things they skip out on for excuses as lame as missing your dinner. Where are we? Where are you in your devotion? It's disturbing, he says. It's uncomfortable. Make you late for dinner. How about you? Make you late for your TV series. Make you late to getting to bed and getting the sleep that you think you need. Make you late or miss your game or, or miss this. Or, and, and the list goes on. Not totally devoted because we're too comfortable at times. We're not committed to the gospel dream nearly as much as we are the American dream. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us at times, we prefer low-cost, low-risk adventures for Jesus. Getting up early, staying up late, getting up when it's cold coming out, reaching lost souls, they seem comfortably far off to most of us. There are two vignettes, I call them totally devoted vignettes. Listen to these people and how they are described in the New Testament. Acts 15, 26. Paul, it's said of Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they're Paul and Barnabas, and we get it. They're the clergy, they're the missionaries, they're professional Christians, they're the people who everybody looks to, and we get that, right? And I understand that, and we ought to have, listen, we ought to have pastors, missionaries, who are willing to risk their lives. We ought to have that, and that is not what it used to be. But I want to show you the other vignette, because they're not professional Christians or pastors or missionaries. They're lay people, they're a married couple, Romans 16, 4 reads, who risked their necks for my life, Paul says. You know who it is? Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, read their story. They move from city to city. They pull up their roots. Wherever Paul goes, they go. They're not much far behind. If he tells them to stay, they stay. You know why? Because it's obvious what their focus is. It's obviously what Aquila and Priscilla are devoted to. It's Jesus. It's not stability. It's not certainty. It's not their lives. They're devoted to Jesus, and wherever it takes them, they're willing to go. And that's what these three mighty men were all about. They're not macho men. They're mighty men. They didn't do this out of some dare, they did it out of devotion, see. So let me tell you, what kind of quality are devoted deeds? They're first of all, they're sacrificial. They risk their lives. But secondly, and I close with this, they are sacred. The Bible says in verse 16 that David wouldn't drink it because the water represented the blood of these men that risked their lives from him. And it says in verse 16 that he poured it out to the Lord on the ground. So David turned 
that little thing of water they gave him into a drink offering. He, he turned it into an act of worship to God. It was sacred to him. Can I tell you this? That's how Jesus sees all the sacrifices. Now listen, not everybody else will see the sacrifices of you praying when no one else is around and the money you give. There's not placards built on your name. Not everybody knows the giving that you do and the labor that you do and the service that you do. And it's okay because God knows. He sees it. He sees all the things that you sacrifice, all the risks that you take. And most of all, he sees the heart that you have and the love that you have for him that's behind all of it. He knows that you're not simply doing it to get kudos and applaud of everybody else. He knows that your motivation is out of love for him and devotion to him. He knows that. So why would David pour this water out on the ground to the Lord? Why didn't he keep it for himself? Why didn't he drink it? You know why? Listen, because he learned a lesson that you and I need to learn. That although he was king, there was only really, there was only really one king who deserved such sacrifice. There was only one king that was worthy of this level of devotion that you would risk your life to give me a drink of water? Who's the one? It wasn't David. It was the greater son of David. It was the true king that would sit on his throne forever. It was King Jesus. Could it be this year for you and I as Christians that we might be able to say to the Lord, Lord, my greatest aspiration is just to be your water boy. Just your water boy. If all I ever do is run for water for you because you asked for it, and whatever sacrifice that means, God, I'm good. I'm good with just being your water boy. And if no one ever sees or hears of all the things I do, it's okay. Because I just want you to know that's how much I really love you, Lord. Who or what are you really devoted to? Let's pray. Father, It's good to be devoted. There's a lot of things that we can be devoted to. And some of them are really good things. But they, became, they become bad things if they exceed and surpass our devotion to you. Lord, our devotion to you should make every other devotion look paltry. And Father, if we're honest this morning as Christians, some of us need to say, Father, I've been devoted way too much to this or this or that. And Father, it's hurting my marriage. It's hurting my spiritual growth. It, I'm not bearing fruit for you. I'm not living obedient to what you've told me. In the, there's so many things that are wrong in my life, and it's because I'm so devoted to anything or everything or so many things more than you. Maybe God's people, there are some here today or listening live stream that say, Lord, I, I want to love you and be devoted to you from my heart. You're not going to have to tell me to give 10%. I want to do that and more. God, you're not going to have to tell me to serve or to do this or to be here at church or to pray or read my Bible or give the gospel to lost people. Look, no, I want to. And what God is asking of us this morning is that we change our hearts. Lord, that's what you're asking. So Father, do the inside work as only you can that Faith Baptist Church might be known and marked by some mighty men and some mighty women, some mighty singles and teenagers and young couples 
who would say, all my greatest desire and ambition is just to be your water boy. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.